1: Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. When I find get my Cleveland heart. Welcome back, America. That's Jackson Brown. His new Maybe album drops today with a new song, My Cleveland Heart. My Cleveland Heart's beating a little bit fast right now because Dr. Ernest Moniz is my guest, former Secretary of Energy Dr. Maniz, on your Twitter account, it says you're a Red Sox fan, so we have some irreconcilable differences, I'm sorry to say.
0: Yeah, but we're in first place.
1: Well, not for long. You guys will always blow it at the end. You're not also a Patriots fan, are you, Doctor? Well, I used to be until Tom Brady left, that's right. <laughs> All right, good, good, good. we we'll got that in common. Uh, Doctor, you are now uh, former Energy Secretary. People know. I want to talk to you about the Iran negotiations underway, but before we get there... What is
0: the Energy Futures Initiative, which you helm now? Well, after leaving the Department of Energy, two colleagues uh, who were also in the department and I uh, formed this nonprofit. And basically, uh, we perform, uh, I think, what we did when I was secretary, namely technically grounded analysis uh, on pathways to a low-carbon future, uh, a future that we think is inevitable, uh, timing we can discuss, et cetera, uh, but uh, but uh, business is there. And uh, so we are trying to uh, essentially establish what are sensible pathways to get there. Now,
1: you are one of the few bipartisan figures on the subject of energy, which I mean both Republicans and Democrats listen when you start to talk. So I'm going to come back to nuclear power generally in a moment, but I want to talk about the Iran deal right now. They're back at the negotiating table, although the Iranian Security Council rejected whatever is in draft form right now. One of the key sticking points has always been Iran wants nuclear power. Lots of people have nuclear power. The United Arab Emirates have got four reactors. I believe you did the gold-plated deal when you were the Secretary of Energy. There's nothing wrong with nuclear power. It's where do you get your enriched uranium where should in your view the iranians get their
0: enriched uranium well if you take a a purely economic uh, view of it i think there is no question that uh, iran uh, could uh, get its nuclear fuel uh, more more economically uh, on the international market Uh, frankly i don't believe their technology is uh, is economically competitive Uh, however as we all know very complicated history uh, their argument would be, uh, well, you know, we, we were building a reactor in 1979, uh, uh after the, uh, the revolution in Iran, uh, the West cut off, uh, assistance, cut off fuel supply. And so they argue that it is a, uh, a necessary, uh, uh, hedge on their part, uh, to be able to, uh, enrich and eventually, uh, manufacture their own fuel. Uh, We think there are many, many other ways to accomplish uh, security of supply, uh, including something here. Uh, You mentioned the Energy Futures Initiative. I'm also the CEO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, which, for example, worked with the IAEA to establish uh, what's called a LEU, low-enriched uranium bank, under IAEA auspices, uh, which is a security of supply move. So there are many options, but the reality is uh, Iran uh, now for decades has been committed to providing this uh, hedge, if you like, in terms of uh, producing fuel. Now,
1: doctor, even though we have Steelers fans and we have to slow down, I often talk about LEU on this show. I've done so with Rick Perry, with Dan I Now I'm doing it with you. This is to me the most obvious thing in the world to have a low enriched uranium international reserve. Why doesn't it exist? Where would it be and how would it run in your view if we were to get it successfully established?
0: Well, it sort of does exist as I just described. Uh, uh right now uh, there is a substantial amount of low enriched uranium, uh you know, in the 4 to 5% range, uh housed in a uh, in, a, in a bank uh, that bank is physically located in Kazakhstan, uh, but uh, with the uh, uh, with the ownership uh, with the IAEA. Actually, uh, it's an interesting story because uh, Warren Buffett uh, uh, and the uh, Nuclear Threat Initiative uh, are the ones who put forward 50 million dollars uh, to be matched two to one, which it was, to establish this bank. And the idea is any country, including Iran, uh, that is honoring its safeguards agreements uh, with the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, would have access uh, to that low enriched uranium uh, if there were some cutoff of supply. And again, they were in compliance with their, with their obligations. Uh, so um, uh, we have started that pathway of the, of the international uh, supply. There's much more that could be done. And in fact, one of the areas that we focus on is uh, we think that uh, a regional approach uh, around the Gulf, uh, the I mean Iran, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, uh, uh, all could have uh, international institutions uh, that that guarantee a uh, a peaceful uh, civilian uh, nuclear power. Uh, activity, as they've all described as wanting to do. You mentioned that the uh, Emirates deserve a lot of credit uh, because they stepped forward with uh, what is called the gold standard, in which they agreed uh, uh, never essentially to to pursue enrichment or other activities that could be uh, misused uh, towards a weapons program. And one of the interesting things that is not emphasized enough uh, is, uh, for example, two years ago, just before uh, COVID, uh, the uh, head of the Emirati nuclear power program uh, was here in the United States uh, uh, celebrating uh, their, ad, their uh, offering and adhering to the gold standard. The interesting point was, he said that the Emiratis, uh, who have been very successful in building their nuclear power program could credit the gold standard with accelerating their progress because it took all this clutter of proliferation issues off the table. So that's what we'd like to see more of, uh, these nonproliferation concerns uh, 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 taken kind of off the table uh, by not having any of these risky technologies uh, spread uh, in, in volatile regions. So I want to put an underline under this. If this Kazakhstan
1: Reserve were to expand and to be secure and to be available for anyone who wants peaceful use of nuclear power, and they were subject to inspections by the IAEA, they would be able to get all of the low-enriched uranium that they need to run as many nuclear plants as they want to build compliant with international standards. That's the proposal. And I know the UAE is in favor of that. I'll bet you Saudi Arabia's in favor of that. Anyone who wants nuclear power and anyone who needs to de- use desalinization is really going to have to get
0: nuclear power. The Iranians will not buy into that? No, as I've said, the Iranians have insisted that they they must have the the capability uh, uh as a hedge because they they would argue that uh, the West has shown uh that uh, for issues not connected directly uh to non-proliferation. There could be a cutoff of, of, of fuel supply. Uh, I think it's going to take a while to kind of earn the trust uh, for all the countries in that region that, to be able to come together. But I, I hope that a multinational solution uh, can be found. I think also you, you made a, by inference, I think an important point. I'd like to I'd like to emphasize the uh, the reality is that it's not just Iran. There are other countries in the region uh, who have said. Look, we have no interest in a weapons program, but neither will we uh, kind of give up uh, our, I'm just quoting them, sovereign right uh, in order to, at some point in the future, uh, do, do enrichment. Well, this has created kind of a, a cul-de-sac in the, in, in the discussions. Uh, we would argue that the, I'm going to mix a couple things here, but I think it's, it's important. We would argue that the strength of the JCPOA, of the Iran agreement, was actually not so much in the nuclear limitations as it is in the verification regime, which is unprecedented. Uh, It has verification requirements when the agreement was in in full force, uh, verification requirements that no other country in the world is subject to. We have argued, certainly not against the gold standard, because that is the gold standard, but we have argued that, look, we have to be diplomatically creative. And there may be other ways you know, to skin the cat, if you like. Uh, for example, there could be non-proliferation arrangements that are based upon a verification approach, which is kind of anal- analogous to the Iran deal, as opposed to uh, red lines about what one can or cannot do. And there could be a mixed, uh, a mixed uh, institutional arrangement along those lines. So uh, what we need to do is to get back to creative diplomacy, uh, and I think to look at the, uh, the proliferation issues uh, in the regional context. Well,
1: I, I am not a fan of the JCPOA, Doctor, as you probably know. I, I want missile limits in there. I want the end of the export of terrorism. I want a bunch of things. And I want it to be submitted to the Senate. But the one thing I don't want people to think conservative opposition is against, I'm not against nuclear power going everywhere in the world, because I think we need nuclear power everywhere in the world. And on that, if we can get, because it's the solution to climate change, if nothing else, people have got to realize we can't get there without nuclear power. Do you agree with that, by the way?
0: Yeah, we've always advocated uh, nuclear power as as a very important part of addressing addressing climate uh, climate change, uh, and there is a tremendous amount of innovation going on right now uh, in in nuclear power, uh, unprecedented. And by the way, I want to make a little aside. Uh, it's not only nuclear fission, which is of course today's nuclear power, but uh, maybe without looking too hard, uh, people have overlooked the enormous progress going on in nuclear fusion as well, which would be a tremendous breakthrough if, you know, if the dog will hunt uh, eventually. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it, it's uh, we could go on about this for a long time because uh, it's private funding that has led to this progress in in, in fusion. But let me go back. Uh, I have to say, look, I, I understand your position on the JCPOA uh, uh, and uh, we can in very civil terms disagree yes. uh, uh, on that. Uh, because, uh, again, we always said, and going back to 2015, uh, that, look, you know, the, uh, the first thing was to get uh, the, the catastrophic risk of Iranian nuclear weapons uh, off the table, not as the end of the uh, of hoped for negotiations, because clearly missiles, human rights violations, uh, regional uh, conflicts, where we have obviously very divergent uh, uh, views, uh, all had to be pursued uh, uh, subsequent to the first step. Uh, and, uh, and I think, uh, I, well, I personally always said, look, uh, until we kind of run the film forward three or four years, start to build uh, more, more confidence, uh, it's going to be very hard to make real progress on these others. I remind you, the JCPOA was, as you know, an agreement, not of just the United States and Iran, but of the P5 plus one. Uh, so uh, uh, the three European countries, uh, UK, Germany, France, uh, Russia, China, the United States. And frankly, because uh, as you know, I was at the table uh, alongside John Kerry, uh, and you um, uh, while the United States was fully responsible, and it was amazing, uh, really, how um, the other countries uh, honored the, 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 situa- the, the arrangement that we were the ones who conducted the face-to-face negotiations, it didn't change the fact that we also had to uh, recognize the positions of a very divergent set of countries, Russia, China, the, and the Europeans. If we had wanted to start off from the beginning with a much broader canvas of the type that you advocated, that is equivalent to a statement that we could make no progress. For example, I remind you, take Russia. Russia was in Syria. Uh, uh, We were not going to be able to negotiate regional activities. Uh, uh, in that way with the P5 plus one. And yet, because Russia and China and the Europeans all shared with us the view that Iran must not have nuclear weapons, I would say flat out that a little bit under the covers, uh, when we were looking at how to implement the nuclear deal with Iran, the most helpful country was Russia. Of all the P5 plus one, they took some steps they did not have to take to help us. Uh, I could go into that in detail, but uh, let me just say flat out they were the most helpful. And I personally was involved in 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 uh, in help helping that. So uh, this was a position that was intended to make progress, to provide a f- foundation to address the other issues that you've addressed. And frankly, once we then pulled out, once President Trump uh, in uh, 20, uh, 2018 uh, pulled out, uh, well, all of that kind of uh, kind of collapsed. And frankly, we can argue it for a long time. We probably don't want to. But the reality is today we are much farther behind the eight ball, certainly in the nuclear regime, uh, than we were uh, with the JCPOA. Uh, in, in fact, frankly, and it's, it's, it's been expressed by our current negotiators that what Iran has done in terms of advancing itself in the nuclear sphere post the U.S. withdrawal at some point is going to make further negotiations fruitless. So That's why, uh, we, Dr. Moniz,
1: I, I always remind the audience— It's an interview, not a debate. I'm not debating you because you're the expert. You're the nuclear physicist. You were at the table. I wasn't. I teach Khan law and whatever they bring back, I want them to take it to the Senate this time. And we'll probably have disagreements. But I'm glad to hear your perspective. I'm curious what you thought of the development in Iran of the election, not merely of a hardliner, but of the hardliners hardliner, the likely successor to the Ayatollah Khomeini is now the incoming president, and he goes by the nickname of the Butcher of Tehran. What does that suggest to you for the future of uh, JCPOA
0: 2.0? Well, you know, my view is, look, this is always, uh, by the way, the treaty issue we, we can certainly discuss, but, but th- this is always an agreement be- between countries. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't waste my time wishing it were a different government. The reality is, uh, in the uh, confidential track, uh, as you know, the U.S.-Iranian discussions actually started uh, before Rouhani, when uh, uh, when there was a conservative uh, uh, president. Uh, then Rouhani came in in 2013, uh, and that's what allowed, uh, since Rouhani was on the, you know, the more more moderate side of the Iranian internal debate. Uh, that allowed then the negotiation to become a formal negotiation with the P5 plus one. Now we go back to a, a very, a very conservative, uh, shall we say, uh, Iranian government. And I would say, okay, look, that, that in no way changes the fact that we, uh, we need to negotiate. We'll see if we can find uh, something that we find uh, in our interest there. But, you know, if I want to uh, argue uh, for uh, a silver lining, uh, it is that uh, with, the new, with the new president, there is a stronger alignment, I- political alignment, uh, between the elected government and the unelected, <laughs> quotes, government, uh, Revolutionary Guard and the like, uh, 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 going forward. In fact... You alluded again to the idea of having a treaty, and um, and what I would say is, you know, in 2015 when we were negotiating, in both countries, in Iran and the United States, there was a strong political internal division, and that of course made the negotiation uh, difficult, uh, and it certainly made uh, sustaining uh, sustainment of that uh, agreement more difficult, as was. Than demonstrated by our uh, by our withdrawal. So now you know. Let's see uh, if we can uh, regain uh, the progress that uh, I believe we we certainly made in 2015. Uh, and uh, at least on the Iranian side, uh, well, <laughs> we certainly can't uh, can't argue that the elected government isn't more aligned uh, with the supreme leader and the and the Revolutionary Guard. It's an
1: excellent it's point, Doctor. If they it's come up with an agreement with this government. The radical government that's in power and they bring that agreement back to the United States Senate and it's, uh, uh, affirmed by the United States Senate by a two thirds vote ratified under the technical term. I will say that's a great deal. I can't argue with that deal because that, that will mean they've done, they've gotten assurances on regional instability on missiles and on everything else that we need. And I'd be the first to applaud that. Sometimes adversaries can become. Allies. Nixon went to China 50 years ago in February. It can happen. Uh, We can't push it, though. Uh, Dr. Wall, I've got you. I want to turn to American domestic issues. We share a friend in Dan Poneman, and I can't go to dinner without hearing Dan talk about the fact that highly enriched low um, uh, uranium, uh, I mean, highly assayed low enrichment uranium is now only available to the United States via Russian sources. I'm always kind of shocked by that. I don't quite believe him. How in the world can the United States have gotten from the position of dominating uranium production and HALO to where we have to de- rely on the Russians to make it for us?
0: Yeah, uh, maybe it's worth just clarifying that, but you're talking about HALO, and HALO means it's still low enriched uranium, but right up against the, the limit of, of 20% enrichment. right? Uh, and And the point is that uh, I mentioned earlier that we've never seen so much innovation uh, in, in nuclear uh, technology as we have today, and most of the new reactors uh, that are being talked about require this kind of halo. Uh, today, it is not made uh, in the United States um, uh, in any appreciable way, uh, and uh, I agree with uh, Dan Poneman, who was the deputy secretary at DOE when I was the secretary, uh, and I guess you and he have a Checkered history as well. Yes, uh, and um, and I agree with Dan that uh, uh, although for a reason not always emphasized, uh, that we need to uh, generate a domestic capability using a domestic enrichment technology because not only will halo be needed uh, to uh, fuel these new reactors, it also will be needed. Uh, LEU and HALU will be needed to address our national security requirements. Uh, we published a paper on this in 2017, we, the Energy Futures Initiative, that we have allowed that supply chain uh, to, frankly, wither. Uh, we need to rebuild it. Uh, it's not like we're going to fall apart in the next uh, 10 years, but it takes a long time to build these new nuclear capabilities. We, I, I think, it's time to start right now. We're going to need that capability to make tritium for our uh, nuclear weapon stockpile. We're going to need it eventually uh, for propulsion of our nuclear navy. Uh, we're going to need it uh, to support uh, some of these uh, new technologies, uh, uh, maybe for the Pentagon, uh, which is looking at small reactors to provide resilience of uh, of our bases, uh, for example. So I think it's time to get on with it. Uh, and I think we're trying to get by on the cheap, to be perfectly honest. I'll be honest. <laughs> I was the secretary. I couldn't get it done. Uh, a lot of resistance because people don't want to spend uh, the money right now. Uh, you know, let's do it mañana. Well, I think mañana is here today. And let's get on with building that supply chain.
1: You know, Dr. Moneys, I have a lot of navalists on the show and the nuclear navy Absolutely depends on HALU, and it will need, and low enrichment as well. They will need a supply in 50 years. It was 50 years ago. It seems like yesterday, Dr. Kissinger went to Beijing on a secret trip. That was 50 years ago this month, and 50 years from now, the nuclear navy is going to need this uranium that we haven't got in the United States. So I'm glad you put that paper out. I want to conclude by talking to you about the most pressing issue, in my view, for the 100 years is water shortage. The most obvious thing to do in California and everywhere is desalinization. It is highly intensive energy use, and it can be completely polluting and CO2 producing unless you do it with nuclear energy. I don't know that there's really an alternative to nuclear energy. Is there for desal? And do you agree with me on the need for
0: desal? Well, look, I, I I may not say that the water supply is the preeminent or only major issue, but it certainly is a very important one. I think no one would dis- disagree with that. And as you say, we're going to need a major uh, low-carbon or carbon-free uh, source there. Uh, I would just note that the new technologies that I keep referring to, uh, uh, the product of, of, of innovation, uh, many of them, uh, beyond the fuel requirements, operate at much higher temperatures than do today's so-called light water reactors, uh, it's the higher temperature that allows a whole bunch of new industrial uses uh, of, of nuclear power uh, much more efficiently. Uh, that would include uh, the, uh, the the desal uh, the desal mission. Uh, it could have other issues like uh, producing hydrogen, and uh, I would just say that. Uh, While there's a lot to do there, uh, one can easily state that a possible outcome is that carbon-free electricity, together with carbon-free or low-carbon hydrogen as a fuel, uh, could be the basis of a broad low-carbon economy, uh, satisfying not just electricity needs, but industrial needs, uh, 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 transportation needs. Uh, building needs uh, basically an entire economy could be built around those those two pillars.
1: Very last question, Dr. Maniz. And I appreciate your time. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party celebrated their 100th anniversary last month. Uh, Chairman Xi gave a speech that made it very clear that his ambitions for the Middle Kingdom are extraordinary. And they are invested in nuclear. Do you think they have achieved a strategic lead over the United States in the development and export of nuclear technology to the third world such that it provides them with a geopolitical advantage that we're just crazy not to take notice of and respond to?
0: Well, right now, uh, uh, I think a lot of, uh, frankly, what we've been doing, including in the nonproliferation regime, um, uh, is, in some sense, pushing a bunch of countries with nuclear power aspirations into the arms of Russia and China. Uh, and uh, that is not, in my view, a uh, or apparently your view, a strategically uh, sound approach. Uh, that's why we need to rebuild the supply chain. Uh, uh, in the end, uh, our ability in the past to set uh, proliferation norms, was based on the fact that we were the technology leaders, uh, that we we have been allowing that to atrophy. Uh, We need to get back into the game. We have these wonderful new technologies. But for example, we haven't solved uh, the approach of, let's say, the U.S. government to be able to get these technologies over the hump to actually build and demonstrate them. Uh, And so uh, I think we need a coherent uh, policy. Uh, That is focused on demonstrating these technologies in this decade so that we know uh, which are the ones that we can expand, that we can export, that we can use for our national security needs uh, and the the whole thing. I I think right now uh, we tend to stovepipe a lot of these concerns and it is not serving as well in terms of building our supply chain. Dr. Maniz, I hope you'll come back when
1: we have a draft, if there is an agreement with Iran that we can then discuss and whether it ought to go to the Senate and all the fine print. You were at the table. You were a great contributor at the table, and I appreciate your expertise and the tone of the conversation. Congratulations. Continued good luck with the Energy Future Initiative. And please come back to The Hugh Hewitt Show.
0: Well, thank you. i will be happy to. And, uh, and I always like these conversations when uh, we try to come together. Yeah, 100 percent. Thank you, Dr. Okay, cheers. That concludes today's
1: episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.